Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there, whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, April 10th, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebrich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Iro, and this time of year I start caring a lot about <laughs> these two clupeans that start moving up the river. It's the river herring. We're talking about the alewife and the blueback herring. Awesome. And we've got two great guests joining us today. We've got Steve Gephardt from Connecticut, who is formerly with the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection with the Fisheries Division. Steve's going to really help us dig into the ecology of river herring. We've also got Jamie Masterson, who's a fish biologist with our Central New England Fish and Wildlife Conservation Office, and she's in Nashua, New Hampshire. And we're going to draw her in to give us an example of a big upcoming dam removal project that's going to be benefiting this fish in her neck of the woods. So very warm welcome to both of you. Thank you. Okay, so I think blueback herring and alewife are pretty beautiful. And we were hoping that we could get one or both of you to help us imagine what it would be like to hold each one in your hands in terms of what they look like, just to kind of kick us off today. So the first thing, and by the way, I guess this is... Fishes of the week? It's fishes today. Fishes, yeah. Yeah, so river herring is a collective term for these two species, but they're very similar. The alewife and the blueback herring, they're part of the anadromous herring family. Anadromous are fish that start their life in freshwater, migrate to the ocean, feed and grow, and sexually mature either out there or shortly thereafter. And then they return to freshwater to complete their life cycle to spawn. Most of the time they come back to where they originated. So that's anadromous. But um, both of these fish are about a foot long at the most. Blueback herring are a little bit less. And they're both highly laterally compressed. So they're flat like a sunfish. Imagine a fish that's eight to 12 inches long, very thin from side to side and very silvery. And those large scales that you can see come off in your hand fairly easily. So if you want that fish alive, you keep your hands wet and return it to the river fairly quickly. Yeah. And they got like an iridescent sheen almost. It looks like sometimes they're beautiful. Yeah. They're silvery, but they do have colors, especially along the dorsal, the top of the flanks, iridescent green and blue. And in fact, the blueback herring gets its name because of more of a bluish hue to the top. Now, one of the things we need to emphasize right off the bat is it takes an experienced person, usually a biologist, to tell them apart. They really look similar. It took me years of handling these things to be able to distinguish them either above water or below water snorkeling of the difference. The blueback herring doesn't have quite the deep belly that the alewife does, and it's got a smaller eye. Anything internally to help distinguish? Well, it's the peritoneum. And so that's how we all learned how to identify them initially. Obviously, you humanely euthanize them, and you cut a slit in the side and fold back the body wall. And in the alewife, the peritoneum, which is the, the tissue that covers the ribs and lines the inside of the body cavity, it's clear. And so when you look at it, you're seeing pink. 
But the blueback herring has sort of a dusky peritoneum. It's full of a lot of melanophores. And so if you look real carefully at it, it's a whole bunch of little black dots. But when you set back, it just looks like it's dusky, especially if you've got dead herring and it's easy to cut them open. That's the easiest way to distinguish the two. So it's fairly easy to tell where the name blueback herring came from, but alewife is not so clear to me. Do you guys know anything about that? Well, the story that usually is told, which probably isn't as politically correct in today's era, is that back in England, the pubs had these women who would serve ale at the pubs, and they generally had a bit of girth to them, shall we say. (laughs) If you look at the side of the alewife, the belly of it extends downward. And so they say that for some reason, the profile of that fish reminded some guys of the women serving the ales at the pubs. And so it became an alewife. Is that what you're hoping for, Guy? (laughs) I didn't know. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) When I think of river herring, I think about the really cool sea run fish community along the Atlantic coast. So its members migrate seaward early in life, then run back up the rivers to spawn. Exception is American eel, which has the opposite direction. But how do bluebacks and alewives fit into this larger sea-run native fish community in terms of their niche and their migration timing and where they like to spawn? Well, these fish are incredibly important component of that fish community that you described. Both of them are anadromous. So they reach adulthood out in the ocean and come into freshwater rivers to spawn. Their habitats are a bit different in that the alewives, while they'll enter the big rivers, they really specialize in spawning in ponds and lakes. Whereas the blueback herring specialize in staying in the river and continuing upstream, particularly in large rivers where they'll spawn in the main stem. And so what you see is along the shorelines of Connecticut, Rhode Island, the Cape, uh, and even up into Maine, there's a lot of coastal ponds. And those are the alewives that are making short runs into Mm -hmm. these ponds and spawning. The blueback herring dominated the large rivers like the Susquehanna, the Delaware, the Hudson, the Connecticut, Merrimack, Kennebec, Penobscot, millions upon millions of these river herring would come into all of these rivers. And so while some of these rivers may have had tens of thousands of salmon, and they might have had millions of shad, they may have had tens of millions of river herring. Yeah. I always like to imagine kind of what it used to be like. That sounds incredible. Yeah. And so they're super important as forage fish. They feed everything. I often refer to them as the field mice of the ocean because (laughs) it's not just other fish like striped bass and bluefish and tuna that they're feeding. They're feeding marine mammals like seals. They're feeding eagles and ospreys are highly dependent upon alewives. So as we're talking about the ecosystem functions of these river herring, and we were talking about forage and buffering for Atlantic salmon smolts and other things, a really important function is to bring these marine-derived nutrients that have been incorporated into the bodies of these fish while they feed out into the ocean, and they come back and deliver that to the doorstep of these Mm -hmm. freshwater ecosystems. 
a lot of them die. A, a lot of them, you know, they excrete all sorts of things into it. There's carcasses. It's like throwing a bag of fertilizer into the ecosystem. Now, these days, we don't want humans to do that, but you can see the value of naturally mediated nutrients going back into a low productivity ecosystem. And so you just cannot underestimate the ecological value of these two species. Are people using these fish for bait for different species? Are people eating them? I know they can be like a buffer for Atlantic salmon smolts out migrating when the herring are coming in. It seems like there's just, they're so cool and there's so much that they're providing. Yeah, as far as human utilization, the flesh is good. Just like shad, they're really bony. You smoke them because then <laughs> you put the bones in and then it's picnic food, you know, and you get your hands dirty, you peel it out and you pull the bones out of your mouth and throw them away. They're using them for bait. And yeah. most of the New England states have prohibited the harvest of river herring now because they're in such bad condition. Maine still allows it. Maine still has some good runs, particularly alewife runs, and they're substantially used as lobster bait. And as you know, lobster is huge in Maine. Mm. Really, are they yearly spawners or do they go, like I know sturgeon, for instance, on the East Coast, they'll sometimes, now they're a super long-lived species, but they'll go out and wait several years before coming back to spawn and then wait right. several more years. Yeah, no, these would be spawning annually. They're not a long-lived species. And so, you know, if they're going out of freshwater less than a year old. And now with climate change, we're seeing an increase in two-year-old spawners, but usually they come back at three years old. Maybe the male's back at three years old, the female's back at four years old. They may survive to spawn one, maybe two more times. But you know, by six years, they're pretty much done. And as you point out, a sturgeon can live to almost 100 years old. And so their whole strategy of reproduction is different. Yeah. What's the timing when they're coming back? This is spring. Well, of course, the timing varies by latitude. Usually, um, it's water temperature that triggers it. So alewives in New England are running anywhere from late March up into May and possibly June. The bluebacks in southern New England, historically, they didn't come into the Connecticut River until the 1st of May. But with climate change, we're seeing both of those migrations advance in time. So last year, we had John Waldman on to talk about American Shad. And he talked a lot about the issues that dams in the Northeast have played on kind of breaking up these spawning migrations. And in particular, he was talking about how Shad need these large rivers in order to get through. However, when I was researching the river herring, I seen lots of these small fish passage sort of things that seem to be helping the river herring quite a bit. So is there a difference between them and shad in that respect? Well, John has published extensively on the impacts of dams and how bad fishways are. But in fact, alewives tend to use fishways better because they're really found in smaller streams. Let's compare two systems. The Susquehanna at the Conowingo Dam in Maryland, which at that point, the dam is about a mile long, and they've got fish passage all the way on one side. And you can imagine, but not all the fish find that. Then you come to Connecticut, and there's a tributary of the Connecticut River called Mill Brook. And with a running start, I can jump across that brook. But we have tens of thousands of alewives come up, and there's a fishway that is, you know, probably no more than 20 feet away from the other side of the stream. Most of the flow is going through that fishway. 
So it's very easy for alewives to find that fishway and they're sprinters and they're able to go up a lot of these commonly used fishway designs. And so, yes, blueback herring will go up those small fishways, but they're just not that common in the small systems. They're more common in the larger systems where fishways are a lot more challenging. Jamie, can you tell us a little bit about your work and give us an example of one of your upcoming projects that's going to be benefiting these fish? Uh, sure. The main focus of my position is fish passage. So removing dams, culverted road crossings. So down at the central New England office, now I've been exposed to you know, the whole seacoast of New England. And so the majority of the work that I do is with all of our anadromous fish species. So that's how I got into working with river herring. And you love them? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're, you know, they're a great success story, at least for the Merrimack River, which is one of the main focuses of my office. Okay. I work all the way from New Hampshire down to Long Island on Fish Passage. And one of the major projects we have going on right now, it'll be starting in June, is the High Street Dam Removal in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. And that's on Town Brook, and it's part of the Taunton River. So the Taunton River has one of the largest river herring returns in the state. So where this dam is, it's pretty high up in the system, but it's a really old, old dam. It was built in the late 1600s. And directly behind it, there's what appears to be a bridge. And actually, we found out it's not a bridge. It's four sort of concrete culverts. So in this project, we're, yeah. So in this project, we're removing the dam and then the town is replacing that culverted bridge with an actual bridge. So that project actually got funded by the bipartisan infrastructure law funding for National Fish Passage. So we received $1.55 million through that. Uh, Project total is a little over 6 million. So it opens up 10 miles of stream, 354 acres. So it's, that's a sizable amount for the river herring. Yeah. You're talking about like a dam, a structure from the 17th century. It seems <laughs> like there would be a lot of like cultural value to that. Now, granted, I love the fish. I want to see them do everything. Do you have to deal with like historic preservation societies when you're talking <laughs> yes. about taking out a structure like that? What's that like? Yeah. The majority of all of the dam projects down in, in this coastal area of New England are all historic. So that environmental compliance falls to whoever is the lead federal agent, and that's just whoever has the most money in it. Uh, fortunately for me in this project, the High Street Dam Removal, they've been working on it for decades trying to get that through. So it was all done for me when I started working on this and put funds into it. But yes, it's a big process. We have to go through the NEPA process, which usually you know, we tend to rely on NOAA for that. And then we have section seven, which is, you know, endangered species. And then the section 106, which is the historic, you know, typically we can get through things. A lot of the times we have to write memorandums of agreement with the state preservation offices. Everybody knows that the dam removal is good. They do some really cool things. Like there was a dam removal in New Hampshire where there's a library and out the window of the library, you can see where the dam was. Oh, that's cool. That's kind of cool. To keep that historic part of it. Yeah. 
So you've got these kind of deadbeat dams that sometimes have a cultural value. You have some of that are still being used. I'm curious. So, I mean, some of them have these fishways that go up the side that the fish can migrate up. Are there any issues for fish migrating downstream that needs to be thought about as well? Yes. Depends on the type of fish. A lot of the times that's something that gets overlooked is the downstream passage. They'll end up going through the turbines instead of going over the dam or if they have like passage around. And they get chopped up. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. that is a real issue. Yeah. Are we talking about adult fish? Are these iteroparous fish? Yeah. Or are we talking primarily about the juveniles? Well, we're talking about both because they are idioparous. Um, just means they can survive spawning and spawn a second time. That's in contrast to semoparous, which most of salmon. People, yeah, think of Pacific salmon. The alewives, let's say in southern New England, they come in in, in April. It takes them a while before they spawn, but they're leaving pretty much immediately after spawning. So they're leaving in May. The blueback herring come in later. They spend more time in the river, but they too, after they're spawned, the survivors will go back out to sea. The juveniles of both species stay in the river for a while. I hesitate there because it depends on the habitat. But You know, more and more, we recognize that downstream passage is important. It's really important on hydroelectric dams. So if there are turbines, we have to go to great lengths to come up with engineering solutions to make sure that both juveniles and adult river herring don't get killed in the turbines, along with the other the shells and everything, yeah. Everything else that are in there. But with a lot of the projects, and including the project that Jamie's talking about working on, on the Taunton system, there are no turbines. If you're taking out the dam, there are no worries, right? You know, the life is good, it's wide open. But if you're building a fishway, you have to make sure that either the fish use the fishway going down, which will often they will not, or if they go over the spillway, there's a nice plunge pool to below. Yeah to soften their blow. We've got many dams that over the years, the old guys have buttressed the spillway with riprap. Mm-hmm. So you've got fish that are coming off of a 15 foot spillway landing on riprap and you don't want that. And so you devise a pipe or some other kind of bypass to guide the down running fish to safe waters. Um, because the other thing that is hand in hand with downstream passage is predation. And when you have all these fish bunched together, there's going to be a predator taking advantage of that. Yep. Or a fisherman. (laughs) How did people catch these fish? I've caught them a few times when I was fishing for like hickory shad on just the shad darts or something, or people using nets or something more efficient because they are a big schooling species. Yeah, people rarely angle for them, although, yeah, a small shad dart or a little tiny fly, once in a while someone will catch them, but it's less productive than musky fishing. It's bad. (laughs) Um, Usually you dip net them. You you get a large bag dip net and you stand on the stream and when this big school of fish crowds around, usually a barrier like a dam, you dip them out. In Maine, they give licenses to harvesters who are able to fish right in the fishway for a certain number of days of the week. And then other days of the week, the fishery is closed. So everything goes up through the fishway and spawn. And these things are so highly fecund 
that it doesn't take a hundred percent of the run to sustain it. I mean, you could have a harvest rate of 60% and you still are probably going to have a plenty of fish to fully seed that lake. Yeah. Wow. But so I have to tell you in my lifetime, I have seen river herring in the Connecticut river go from obscene abundance in which every single stream is black with fish. And that, you know, you could throw out a treble hook in every single cast, you'd bring in one or two fish, or you could do a dip net and get a, you know, a hundred fish in a bag of a net. That was commonplace starting in April. And there is a wave of fish every single week until mid-July. And they were constantly in spawning. Now, even with the closures, we have blueback herring coming in about one week a year, usually around Memorial Day weekend, and that's it. And we're lucky if that's a thick run. You know, before I would say on the Salmon River in central Connecticut, the blueback herring would come in, you know, 10,000 or so every day. Now, when they are in, they're in for three or four days a year, and there's probably 5,000 at the most. And so the decline has been very steep, What else is going on? So, I mean, those dams have been around for a long time. It sounds like, is there anything going on in the marine environment or other factors that are affecting them? I always lose patience when myself and other advocates for river herring are talking to people or even reading peer-reviewed papers. And they always say, you know, the decline of river herring is due to building the dams. Well, yeah, that between 1630 and 1920, that was the case. But since 1990, there has been a sharp decline in numbers. And not only has nobody built any new dams, we've been taking out dams and building fishways and cleaning up our rivers and improving the habitat consistently. And the numbers are still going down. So in answer to the question, yes, there is something going on in the marine and it's called bycatch. So Nobody's allowed to fish for river herring in Connecticut waters or Massachusetts or New York and many others, but they're out there fishing for other species. So what's happening is in the late winter, very early spring, the river herring, both alewives and bluebacks, are staging off of Block Island and Montauk and Narragansett Bay, that area of southern New England. Well, that's where the big concentration of Atlantic herring are too. And by the way, a blueback herring looks like a small Atlantic herring. And we need to better regulate the fishery to minimize that bycatch. Hmm. What are the public perceptions about this fish? Are they fairly positive for the most part? They are positive for the most part. And when one of the things that, you know, Jamie and her colleagues see when they're removing dams, there's a lot of support for this. A lot of New England no longer has Atlantic salmon, and some of these streams were too small for shad. And so alewife has become the charismatic migratory species of New England. And school children come out and see them, and it's all positive, except that There are some cases where once they're in a lake, there's a perception that alewives will screw up the ecosystem and cause algal blooms and other things. In southern New England, which there have been algal blooms when the landlocked 
alewives never leave. They spend 12 months a year in that lake eating zooplankton, and so they have phytoplankton blooms. The problem on the St. Croix, the alewives had been in there for decades doing a great job, and all of a sudden they had a crash of smallmouth bass, and some guys got the idea that, oh, it's the alewives. And that idea has been discredited now, and it's full speed ahead. And the Fish and Wildlife Service is taking the lead on restoring fish passage on the St. Croix. And I think that's going to be a huge success story. But some of these old myths are hard to die. You yeah. know, So we're always combating this misconception about alewives in lakes. Jamie, I'm excited to kind of follow this dam project. What do you think is going to happen when it comes down? How fast do you anticipate fish returning? So the dam itself does have a really old concrete fish weight on the side of it. And I believe it does pass a small amount of fish every year. The reason the dam was there was an ironworks mill. And so they put a fish counter right there. So usually it said it averages about a little under 8,000 river herring come up through there a year. Last year across the board, we saw really low numbers in like everywhere in New England. And they only had 4,500 come up last year. So the dam should come out really quickly. The majority of this project that's going to take time is going to be the reconstruction of the bridge. As soon as that's out next year, all the fish will be able that's to make cool. it upstream. So, okay. And, cool. and it'll take a few years, whatever it is, three, four years, before we really see the impact of all those fish being able to get up to the lake. Yeah, hopefully people kind of keep track of that and watch that one. That should be neat. So are there dams upstream of that? There's more impounded water that they can access? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a large lake up above there that has passage on it. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the lakes in New England have a dam at the outlet. So for like a species like an alewife, it seems like another kind of tricky thing to navigate around with people liking lakes and stuff. Well, the tricky thing is that, keep in mind, alewives like ponded water. And so if you're taking out dams and building fishways to restore their access to a lake, you can expect a real positive impact of doing this and getting a lot more inland production. In some of our coastal streams in Connecticut, these fish are going up a fishway into a small mill pond, and they're spawning in the mill pond. Later, we come by and we take out the dam, and numbers of alewives actually go down because you've reduced the amount of spawning habitat without the dam, because now it's just a small stream. It's maybe a little trout stream. But that's why the situation on the Taunton is great, because it's still got plenty of spawning habitat, as do most of the streams around when we do this work. Steve, you seem pretty passionate about all these fish, including yeah, the salmon, well, probably, I'm guessing. I am, by both training and interest, I am a diagnosis fish biologist. But I spent every summer of my life at a family cottage, and I would come out and witness these migrations that were nothing like anything that I would see in the Midwest. And I was next to a couple of streams, including the Salmon River, a tributary of the Connecticut River, where I witnessed the spectacle as a kid. Once I knew that I wanted to become a fish biologist, it was only natural for me to gravitate toward these diadromous species, which I really fell in love with at an early age. Well, thanks so much. Um, okay, so get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially the river herring. Okay. Great. Thanks, all. 
Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. Fish.